No, I'm not speaking today, but I am allowed to and honored to introduce who is. And it's not Matt. He is actually speaking at Hawkwood. So we're just doing a little trading around here this morning. Uh, Terry Fawson is the regional minister of the ABA. Some may say, what's the ABA? It's the Alberta Baptist Association, which we are a part of. Now, I met Terry years and years ago because when I was 27, I came to Thornhill Baptist Church as their very first non-German pastor, by the way, and I broke some ground in that church and tried to learn a few terms to get in with them, and uh, they accepted me gladly, and I've been a part of the NAB since my parents' church planted an NAB church way back in Winnipeg when I was around 10 years old. So I have a history there, but I had been part with Terry. Terry was at Central Baptist uh, when I was involved here. Uh, He also has taught at the seminary, and then he's been back to Central Baptist, and then he went back to the seminary, and now he's in the head office. So a little confused, but no, no, he's just being sharing all of wealth. His wife, Tammy, is here with us as well. And uh, if you didn't know, Matt is the associate regional minister. So there's a connection there as well. So we're really excited that uh, uh, Terry could be sharing with us. And I just want to pray for him as we call upon him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your blessing. Thank you that you are a God that desires to comfort us, to lead us, to guide us. We thank you for all that you continue to do through us. We thank you for Terry, the years of ministry that you've called him to, and just continue to pray for him and his role. And we understand we live in a time and in a world that Well, there's a lot of fear that exists, there's a lot of turmoil, but you are a God that has not been dethroned, and so we thank you that you are in control, and we now pray that you will guide Terry in the words that you would have him share to us, and that we could listen, and thank you for that, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, thanks, Glenn, so much. Thank you for this privilege for us to be together in worship. Already I thought, oh, let's just keep on singing here, and then uh, that's, uh, we'll come. That'll happen yet uh, today. I am what Glenn indicates, Alberta beef. I was born and raised in this province and uh, and, uh, actually grew up in Carbon, Alberta. You know where that, how many know where Carbon is? It's, oh, see, see, this is home territory almost. Pastor Tim actually grew up in Three Hills while I was growing up in Carbon, you know, and so I always thought that Three Hills was the suburb of Carbon, you know, but it, uh, but then I realized Calgary is a suburb of, anyway, we won't talk anymore about that, but yeah, I, Alberta Baptist Association is a group of 60 churches around the province, and uh, this church has been part of this association for decades. In fact, I knew your church planter, uh, Pastor Harold Weiss, Ruth and Harold Weiss. In fact, his children are younger than me, but I did the wedding for one of his sons, and uh, who is still a very good friend of ours, uh, Dan Weiss. And and then after that, you had uh, Pastor Lyle Byer here as the as the lead pastor, and Lyle and Jeannie were on staff with me at Central, but just before they came here, and. Uh, Lyle and I grew up in Carbon, Alberta, together. So I just shows you we're all we're all Alberta beef. And and then Scott Joy was in training sessions together with me, um, and it was a great joy to have Scott Joy. Anyway, whatever. But uh, you know, I'm sure he'd never heard that one before. But 
It's a, it's a privilege to be here and to be realizing that as a group of churches, we associate together. That's why we're an association, because we believe we can do more together than we can do by ourselves as one individual congregation. Every congregation is essential, of course, to impact the communities in which they, the congregation is established. But if we can work together, we can, do, we can have uh, training schools, um, Bible schools and seminaries, which we do. Um, we can do international missions and have camp ministries and work with Mustard Seed International, of which this association was one of the establishers. And, and uh, you can just keep going on and on. We have a, a great history of churches working together, not because they have to, but because they choose to. And the mission of the association is to connect these churches of our association and then resource them in order to better impact their communities. And so that's why it's good to work together. And it's good to be here. It's been a while since I've actually been here at the pulpit. And so I'm so pleased to step together with you into God's word and, and in live format. You know, we I know this, uh, this technology is outstanding, and but it's, you know, it's just not quite the same as when you can shake a hand or get a hug or say hello face-to-face with someone. The past couple of years in particular, and we know our, our years where uh, we have been discovering that we live in a world that is changing so rapidly. We know that change is always implicit in life. That's part of what we can expect when we are stepping into this humanity that God has created. He created us to change because change is part of what is required for us to grow. But change can also be difficult, especially when it invades uh, what is what we call normal and the the relational domain. And when change starts to rub us in relational dynamics and as we've noticed in the last couple of years, as, as the world in, in this COVID world has tended to shrink, there's been a, a reducing of our contact with each other. And it's almost like we get out of practice in relating with one another. And as that happens, the risk of human relationships eroding can become very real. As we see each other kind of at a distance and we are we're we're kind of infiltrated with fear and wondering and what's coming and are you safe and all these important struggles that are going on and then then we take a look through the lens of the virtual reality again and you and we see what's going on in this world in ways that we don't really uh, really want to know sometimes you know the, the bible says in much knowledge is much grief and the more we know what's going on in our world not just we're hearing about it or even somehow seeing it, but actually real-time experiencing it, like the tragedy that's going on overseas in Europe right now, is the more of it, it just starts to help us understand that we can grow apart. We can grow away from each other as we look to protect ourselves and, and find those secure places. And, of course, there are many ways to respond to relational distress. In particular, we become incredibly, incredibly skillful with responding when, to, to relational dynamics when we find that someone could threaten us or maybe even find ourselves hurt by someone in some way. Have you ever found yourself 
injured by another person. If that's the case, that's part of being human. That's part of being in the human reality. It's not how God designed it, but it's how things happen. You and I know this. As sin entered the world, that's what happens to the rest of the world is that the world starts to unravel. That someone can hurt us and and we can become the author of someone else's hurt and someone else's struggle. And we can begin to take on the understanding that that person is my enemy. Someone who I don't trust. Someone who I don't want to be with. In the face of conflict, many people have different responses to what can, how they want to deal with that other person. When we start seeing someone as other, we start to understand why we can find ourselves more and more isolated and more and more in struggle relationally. And if, if we find that person is somehow threatening to us, we can respond in anger or frustration and sometimes in violence and and perhaps hoping that maybe, just maybe, we can retro, we can bring a, a, a measure of re- response the way they might be threatening us in similar fashion. We keep the enemy or enemies uh, at bay in that way. In the face of conflict, some people seek to escape from the enemy. Other people seek to respond in like fashion. Somehow... Um, Whatever, making sure we are safe in a retreated place, finding a place where we can kind of sort out life at a distance from others, but ultimately that distance creates greater issues. Psychologists have identified this, the response uh, typically to struggle with others as the fight-flight response. I'm sure you've heard that before, that we, we either... Uh, try to somehow push the enemy away or the, that hurting person, that hurtful person away, or we run away from that person. And so that's sometimes understood to be normal, and maybe we come to understand that is just the way life is. There are those who fight back, and there are those who run away from fighting. Fight or flight. And then there are those who say, you know what, we should try to resolve these issues in life and, and in a mature, altruistic way, choose to step through the pain that we are having with others, with the one that may have inflicted us with hurt or with fear, to face those realities, acknowledge those hurts, search for a mutual solution, desire to move beyond the enmity with the enemy. And based on the premise that fighting with an enemy or fleeing from an enemy remains far from optimum, there are lots of courses out there and seminars and workshops, whole disciplines devoted to this matter of conflict resolution. And that's good. That's, that's helpful. So when it comes to conflict in life, there are those who fight with an enemy, there are those who flee from an enemy, and there are those who finagle with an enemy, if you want to say it in those ways. But then, there are those who step beyond reason with an enemy, with someone who has hurt them, to someone who threatens them, or someone who causes them to experience loss in their life. There are some who step beyond reason, who end up blessing an enemy, if we can imagine that. Loving an enemy, 
even treating an enemy as valuable, as someone to care for, someone to invest in. And where in the world did that come from? Well, that did not come from the world. (laughs) It came from a rabbi who lived in this world, a rabbi of the first century named Yeshua ben Joseph, more familiarly known as Jesus. Jesus encountered conflict on an unprecedented scale and engaged the enemy in an unbelievable fashion. When after being falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned, embarrassingly ridiculed, savagely beaten to the breath point of, of within a breath of his life, just at the moment when he was being fastened to that infamous Roman killing machine, just at the moment when Jesus was being cruelly suspended between heaven and earth, with the weight of his body dangling on three nails, with the weight of ungodly fury from human forces of selfishness in earthly places, from spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, tearing at him from all sides, just at that moment, Jesus spoke a word which not only turned the tables on the enemy, but transformed the equation, rewrote the rules for engaging struggle in life, rewrote the rules for dealing with those who are hurting us in life. And the word was forgive. According to scriptures, the first thing Jesus said after being hung on that cross to die was a prayer. A prayer of petition to the Almighty, his Father, our Father, who art in heaven, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So who was he praying for? Who is it that represents the them that needed forgiveness? Was it the Sanhedrin, the members of the governing council of the day who condemned him? Was it the angry, bloodthirsty mobs who mocked him and spat upon him? Who was he talking about? The soldiers who mercilessly beat him and hung him up to die? Was it the two thieves hanging on each side, hurling insults at him? The disciples so close to him, yet nowhere to be found? Really then, who was it that Jesus was forgiving? Because an enemy can come in all shapes and sizes. An enemy can manifest in all sorts of situations, as essentially an enemy is anyone who hurts me, or you, or us. Perhaps out of hurt as well, perhaps out of confusion, perhaps out of misguided zeal, Nonetheless, someone who hurts us. And as we are so sadly aware over all this world, there are people suffering unbearably, even to the point of death, at the hands of racial enemies and ethnic enemies and political enemies and religious enemies. But usually it's quite surprising who an enemy really is. One Children's ministry small group leader asked the Sunday school class, why does the Bible tell us to love our neighbor and love our enemies? Immediately one little boy put up his hand and said, probably because they're generally the same people. (laughs) 
In so many ways, that's quite profound. He was right. Because truly, an enemy can be a colleague at work who consistently discriminates unfairly against me or you. It can be an, a cousin or a nephew, an aunt, who makes a habit of belittling you during that family gathering every time. An enemy can be a cantankerous neighbor who complains about everything you do in your yard because it looks better than his. It can be someone very close to you, a rebellious child, a cold parent. You could be sleeping with the enemy, a spouse who's been unfaithful, who is uncaring, not listening, ill-tempered, So often the enemy with whom you struggle the most is someone very familiar, isn't it? Someone very personal. Of course there are enemies on international scales where war rages. We could just weep to think about that. But usually the enemy is someone very close. Regardless of whom the enemy is, Jesus' word, even near to his dying breath, is unequivocally clear. Forgive. But no mistake about it, Jesus' call for forgiveness was not a statement of passive resistance. It was not an expression of helpless acquiescence. He was not like some pious mystic issuing some idealistic platitude about being nice to those who are hurting you. As he petitioned for forgiveness... We know exactly what Jesus meant because he often spoke about forgiveness, practically teaching about forgiveness. And perhaps his most familiar teaching about forgiveness is what we find in his Sermon on the Mount, his Magna Carta for the Kingdom of God, where he first provides some specific examples of what it takes to forgive an enemy, saying, don't resist an evil person, an enemy. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, Strike him on the other. No, that's not what it says. Turn the other also. Someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him take your coat as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two. This is Jesus speaking. And then in stunning summary, he declares in Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Ah, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons, daughters of your Father in heaven. By way of his poignant example on the cross, Jesus was championing the kind of forgiveness which releases an offender, releases an enemy from the pain of the offense, releases an offender from the penalty of the offense, from the price of the offense, as essentially the one who forgives absorbs the cost incurred. That's what forgiveness really amounts to. A financial illustration makes that forgiveness really quite simple. If you have a debt, which you owe to me, and if you say, I I can't pay that debt, and I say, I forgive your debt. I've absorbed that debt because you owed it to me, you see. 
And the final analysis, I pay so that your debt is forgiven. Very simple to understand. So no matter what requires forgiveness, regardless of what we're talking about, when I choose to forgive, I choose to pay the price that's come upon me. There's an article that Philip Yancey wrote where he describes forgiveness as an unnatural act. In the article, he says, you don't find dolphins forgiving sharks for eating their playmates. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, not dog-forgive-dog world. And Sigmund Freud understood this law of nature when he said, one must forgive one's enemies, but not before they've been hung. Forgiveness is certainly a challenge to the human condition. Perhaps C.S. Lewis caught the real reason why when he wrote, everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. (laughs) Forgiveness sounds good. It looks good on paper. And certainly forgiveness is priority one in terms of God's business. But forgiveness is certainly also very messy business, isn't it? In fact, to forgive is to die. In one way or another, forgiveness calls us to die to ourselves, to what we want, to what we feel, to what we see as right or just. When Jesus called upon the Heavenly Father to forgive his enemies, he was, in effect, saying to the Father, I'm ready to die. I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to absorb the cost of what these enemies are doing to me. What I want more than anything is for these to be set free. And with this simple word from Jesus, the world was changed forever. One biblical theologian outlines all that was hinging on that incredible decision, explaining that if Jesus had cried out in vengeance or even injustice on his, uh, on his enemies, there would be no gospel, no New Testament, no church, no Christian history. We may never have heard his name. Father, forgive This prayer is the miracle. That prayer gave us the gospel, the good news, that life can happen beyond wound, injury, and death. There on the hill, God was fighting his enemies, but he was doing it his way, not ours. He was fighting them by forgiving them, saving them, loving them. They cried out, save yourself. Give us a sign from heaven. Come on down from that cross. Let's see a miracle that you can prove who you really are. And he gave them an unexpected miracle. Father, forgive. That's the unexpected miracle, which is more divine than any miracle, more powerful than any sign from heaven. It seems that Alexander Pope was right when he penned those words, to err is human, to forgive is divine. It can't happen in our own natural way. It's got to be a supernatural work of God. Because forgiveness is miraculous. But it's also dangerous and very expensive. One popular biblical theologian says, never did what is right involve itself so intimately with what is wrong as it did when Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth. God on a cross. God on a cross. Humanity at its worst. Divinity at its best. Something is said at the cross about conflict. Something hopeful. Something healing. Something is also stated about God himself. God is not stumped by an evil world. 
He doesn't gasp in amazement at the dearth of our faith, at the depth of our failures. He can't even be surprised with our cruelties. He knows the condition of this world and loves this world even so. For just when we find a place where God would never be like on a cross, we look again and there he is, hanging there in the flesh, God. There in that place of death, Jesus incited a conflict revolution, not just resolution. He instigated a revolution of forgiveness, but it cost him everything. During these days of Lent, as as you've been journeying with Pastor Matt and others through the scriptures to gain a perspective on Easter, we discover this conflict revolution, that Jesus' revolution of forgiveness first requires death. But not death as an end in itself. Not death as a simple conclusion to the conflict. Rather, forgiveness requires death as a means to life. In simplest terms, forgiveness requires death so as to give the offender another chance. And Jesus put this essential side of forgiveness into clear perspective in the Garden of Gethsemane at the time of his arrest when Peter stepped forward to defend Jesus, wielding his sword, striking off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus explained to Peter what we all need to hear. Put your sword back where it belongs. All who use swords are destroyed by swords. Don't you realize I'm able right now to call on my father. I could have angels everywhere. I could snap my fingers and I would be safe. In so many words, Jesus was saying, I'm not here to win. I'm here to forgive. If I wanted, I could destroy all those who seek to destroy me. I, I, no one could lay a hand on me. I choose to be arrested to absorb what's to follow, even to die, for the sake of my enemies, for the sake of me and you. Because I love you. I love my enemies. I want to give them another chance to live, to have opportunity to to start life over. It's called forgiveness. It's called mercy. It's called grace. It's called the fullness of God's love. It's called getting a perspective on Easter. Christmas Day, 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a sermon at Montgomery, Alabama, where he pointed that mercy and forgiveness. He spoke about loving your enemies, saying, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. Such forgiveness doesn't mean that we ignore the wrong committed against us. Rather, it means that we no longer allow the wrong to be the barrier of our relationship with someone. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a new beginning. As we approach Easter, we discover that the message of Easter is all about starting over, new beginnings, life, after death. And there is life, new life, better life, on the other side of dying to myself. That if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then God is all about new life. And that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then he can do anything. He can revolutionize any relationship. He can transform any situation. He can transform suffering into celebration, turn hate into love, change an enemy into a family member. Enable the likes of me and you to forgive, even to love an enemy. 
It wasn't just a good idea. That was an instruction from our Lord. Love your enemies. It's a new commandment I give to you. So is there life on the other side of forgiveness? The message of Easter declares a categorical yes. On the other side of forgiveness, there's new life for the offender, for sure. But also for the one being offended. There's new life for those that offer the forgiveness, too. Jesus was resurrected. (laughs) That's good news, the best news ever. In fact, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther once wrote, the gospel doesn't explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains why we have the gospel. That God is in Jesus inciting a revolution, a conflict revolution. And so during these days, as we journey through the scriptures, in getting a perspective of Easter in preparation for that celebration, we discover that Jesus' revolution of forgiveness requires death but renews life. And wherever conflict resolution becomes reality, it stuns us, doesn't it? Transforms the world. Even Mahatma Gandhi, I don't know if you know about that, but when he was just dying after an assassin's bullet had been put into his body, he raised his fingers in that act which had come to characterize him, stating Forgive the man who just kills me. And Mahatma Gandhi acknowledged the source of his capacity to forgive was the one from a cross who said, Father, forgive. God's revolution of forgiveness changes the world one person after another. Desmond Tutu, I read this after he was visiting Edmonton several years ago, wrote about being exhilarated, listening to one person after another who suffered grievously under apartheid, they had a bit, they should have been consumed by their bitterness and revenge. Instead, they were extraordinary people, revealing a remarkable degree of magnanimity and nobility of spirit in which they were ready to forgive those who had treated them horrendously. God's revolution of forgiveness changes the world one person at a time. I wonder if we really believe that. God's revolution changes the world one person at a time. And it's meant to change my life and your life. Sometimes it's, it's offered to us repeatedly because we need it repeatedly in our own personal lives. God's forgiveness. Maybe you are like one of the disciples knowing all about being trustworthy and consistent and faithful. Then when the pressure's on feeling like you just failed miserably. Maybe you feel like a Pharisee, totally out of control, deeply angry inside. Maybe you're like a soldier, cool, tough, crude, arrogant. God wants you to know he loves you like he loves the one who looks nice because he loves all of humanity. He sent his son to handle the forgiveness, absorb the cost, of that kind of sin. God wants you and I to know that just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Jesus died for us, the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So if 
When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, forgiven by him through the death of his son. How much more, having been forgiven, having been reconciled, shall we be saved forever through his life? We need his forgiveness. And then God wants us to step in that forgiveness, into his forgiveness revolution, where we find that person who is the enemy in our lives, who has hurt us, who deserves to pay for something they've done to us, who doesn't deserve a new chance, who who doesn't decide, require, need, want, doesn't deserve mercy, wants it. Max Lucado wrote, The need to forgive, saying relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. You may have an enemy in your life, someone who has hurt you so badly, some ones who have hurt you, wondering, How do I get to this place to forgive? How do I find this mercy to love an enemy? That only comes as we are forgiven, truly forgiven, and let the transformation of God's Spirit within us cause us to do something supernatural. Some people say, well, that's just beyond our human nature. And I would say, absolutely true. But we've been made new as his followers. And we have his spirit within us to make that kind of revolution a reality. May God so help us to be able to pray what Jesus taught us in the petition to the Father saying, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This petition of our Lord could just as easily be forgive us so that in order, as we have been forgiven, so that we can forgive those. The capacity to forgive is beyond me, naturally. It's beyond any of us. But it's not beyond the living God who lives within us. God wants you and I to become a part of his forgiveness revolution. As we step towards Easter in these days, let's ask him how we can be part of that as he uses us to transform this world one soul at a time. Lord, we pray that we will not just hear this word and agree with its intent, realizing it is not just spoken by you, but lived out by you. Not just 2,000 plus years ago, but today because you are alive. Your spirit lives within us. You are not somewhere out there. You are somewhere, someone in here, among us, within us. Would you transform me and each one of us in such a fashion that we will be instruments of your transformation? We will join the conflict revolution. We will be, by your power, able to forgive. We pray in your name, dear Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.